and ticketing information at goldenthread.org. This is a KPFA-sponsored event. This is Free Speech Radio News for Tuesday, December 1st, 2009. From New York City, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up on today's newscast, activists hit the streets across the country ahead of President Obama's speech on Afghanistan this evening. Tell our soldiers, don't go. Don't go. Refuse. Resist. Don't go. Hundreds of thousands of unemployed Americans are set to lose subsidies for health care today. People who can't pay for the COBRA premium uh, without the subsidy will be uninsured, and that's like playing Russian roulette with their health. And today is World AIDS Day. We'll take a deeper look at policy change and new programs in South Africa. President Zuma came into office in May of this year, and these are the right people with uh, a profound commitment to change the course of the AIDS pandemic in South Africa. Those stories and more right after the headlines. I'm Nell Abram with the headlines for Free Speech Radio News. Philippine authorities formally charged local mayor Andal Ampatuan Jr. today with 25 counts of murder in last week's politically motivated massacre that killed 57 people. The powerful heir apparent of a clan closely allied with the Philippine president has denied the charges. Ampatuan's family has singularly ruled the province for years. The attack on a convoy of political opponents and journalists took place in Maguindanao province on the island of Mindanao. The victims were hacked with machetes and buried in mass graves. Last week, Philippine President Gloria Macabacal Arroyo ordered a state of emergency. Today, members of the Ampatuan clan appealed to the Supreme Court to order that any arrests be carried out with due process. More charges are expected as autopsy results are released. An Argentine court has blocked Latin America's first gay marriage. The grooms were set to take their vows today. Free Speech Radio News' Marie Tragona reports from Buenos Aires. Hundreds waited inside a Buenos Aires civil registry for Argentina's first gay couple. Alex Ferrer and Jose Di Bello were originally denied a marriage license, but in the last few weeks, an appeals court ordered that they be allowed to marry. Then, just a day before the two were to wed, a federal judge issued an injunction to stop the marriage. Despite the decision, the grooms tried to go ahead with the ceremony. Alex Ferrer, one of the grooms, said in a press conference, Today, on December 1st, 2009, World AIDS Day, we, Alex and Jose Maria, have made the decision to get married. This decision is much more than just two people who love each other and want to share their lives together. This is also a decision by the coalition of gay, lesbian and transgender communities who want all our rights. The recent ruling ordering the city to allow the men to marry was issued by a trial-level judge. Today's injunction said that only an appellate-level judge can make such a ruling and threw out the order. 
Alex Ferrer and Jose Maria DiBello may take their case to the high court. The nation's Supreme Court says it will decide on the issue of gay marriage, where one justice said today they are already considering another case on the matter. Rights groups call on Buenos Aires City representatives to uphold the reversal of the ban on same-sex marriage. Marie Tragona, FSRN, Buenos Aires. The Sri Lankan government says they have lifted all restrictions on some 127,000 Tamil civilians who remained confined to refugee camps since the end of the nation's 25-year war with the Tamil Tigers. Sri Lankan High Commissioner Nihal Jayasinghe. As from 1st of December, there are no restrictions at all. They can move wherever they want to at their free will. No restrictions, that is, as long as they register before they leave. Hundreds of thousands of Tamil Sri Lankans were trapped in the war zone and used as human shields in the waning days of the war. When the government defeated the LTTE rebels, they confined those trapped in camps, saying they needed to weed out any rebels in the group. But human rights organizations, many governments, and the U.N. criticized the camps, citing deteriorating conditions and calling them internment camps. Sri Lankans will go to the polls in national elections in January. The war against the Tamil Tigers and treatment of the Tamil civilians are major campaign issues. And the United States Senate is set to cast its first vote on landmark health care legislation today. It's an amendment introduced by Democrat Barbara Mikulski and Republican Olympia Snow. It calls for increased preventive care for women. The Congressional Budget Office estimates the amendment could add another $940 million to the cost of the bill over a 10-year span. Sponsors say the measure is intended to stop insurance companies from limiting mammograms and cervical cancer screenings for women based on recent recommendations from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, as well as an independent panel of doctors and scientists. And Republican Senator John McCain has introduced an amendment calling for restoration of more than $400 billion in proposed Medicare cuts. Hospital penalties totaling $7.1 billion. Home health care cuts totaling $42.1 billion. Hospice Of all the things, hospice. The cuts to Medicare would pay for nearly half of health care reform. The Congressional Budget Office says more than 30 million uninsured Americans would get health insurance under the bill. For Free Speech Radio News from WMNF Community Radio in Tampa, I'm Nell Abram. This is Dorian Marina in New York. President Obama is expected to announce the deployment of an additional 30,000 troops to Afghanistan in a primetime address to the nation tonight from the Military Academy at West Point. On Capitol Hill, both Democrats and Republicans are expressing dissatisfaction. Republicans are upset by how long it has taken Obama to reach his decision, and many Democrats are disappointed with the increase of troops. Meanwhile, Americans are taking to the streets to voice their outrage at the decision. FSRN's Sharon Sabota reports. Demonstrations are planned around the country today and tomorrow, from New York to Miami to San Francisco. Some anti-war activists began a four-day protest over the weekend. Okay, pink, pink, pink. On Saturday, activists with the group Code Pink departed from the Berkeley Marine Recruiting Center on a tour that stopped at seven military bases and finally reached Creech Air Force Base Monday morning. 
The group is protesting the war in Afghanistan and the use of unmanned drones, which are responsible for the deaths of many civilians in Pakistan. Susan Joy is a local coordinator for Code Pink. We are on the road. We're going to Crete Air Force Base, which is about 600 miles from here, to tell our country and to tell soldiers and to tell our president, first of all, no surge to Afghanistan. The other thing is to tell our soldiers, don't go. Don't go. Don't go. Refuse. Resist. Don't go. Another protester, Sonoma resident Linda Sartor, joined the group for her first Code Pink mission. Sartor has participated in peace activism in countries ranging from Iran to Sri Lanka. Sartor says she has witnessed people from around the world who are either afraid of the consequences of speaking out or who have become apathetic. Most people in the power tend to play up on our fears and create a culture of fear that holds people down. And the, anybody, the more anybody can follow their heart, and it's not that you can get rid of fear, but just be with the fear and do it anyway, then the better off the whole world will be. After more than six years occupying Iraq, anti-war groups want to avoid another endless war. J.C. Horton is with the Catholic Worker Food Shelter and showed up at the Berkeley Code Pink send-off carrying an upside-down flag. It means that our country is in distress. At least 40 rallies are planned across the country today in advance of President Obama's speech to cadets at West Point Military Academy. Sharon Sabota, Free Speech Radio News, Berkeley, California. Today is World AIDS Day, and across the globe, activists, government officials, and NGOs are participating in hundreds of events to raise awareness about the disease. Some 33 million people are living with HIV worldwide, but Sub-Saharan Africa continues to be the region most heavily affected, accounting for 67% of all HIV cases. What's more, 91% of all new infections are among children, according to UN AIDS. Another 14 million children have become orphans in sub-Saharan Africa after their parents died from the disease. The rate of HIV-AIDS in South Africa is particularly startling, where, according to the World Health Organization, one out of five people live with HIV. That's more than any other country. But policies could be shifting. Earlier today, President Jacob Zuma announced a new plan that would bring life-saving treatment to HIV-positive infants under 12 months old and to pregnant women. This comes, however, as international groups released a report criticizing President Obama for a lack of funding for AIDS-HIV programs in Africa. Assessing his first year in office, the report gave the president a grade of D+. We're joined by Dr. Paul Zeitz, Executive Director of Global AIDS Alliance, a nonpartisan advocacy network based in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Free Speech Radio News. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's start with South Africa. Uh, President Jacob Zuma seems to be making a shift from former President Mbeki. Uh, last month, Zuma cited figures that showed a jump in HIV infection in the country, uh, saying that death rates could soon outnumber births. Uh, then this announcement today to expand testing for infants and offer treatment. How do you see this change? Well, President Zuma came into office in May of this year, and this is his first uh, commemoration of World AIDS Day. And I think you have to look at the appointments that he's made. He appointed a new minister of health. He appointed new leadership in the National AIDS Council. And from all reports that I've heard, 
these are the right people with uh, a com- profound commitment to change the course of the AIDS pandemic in South Africa. Then, on top of that, he used today's commemoration to launch a very important new initiative to call for all South Africans to get tested. That is a breakthrough. He also called for all children under one year of age to have access to life-saving AIDS medicines. This is a breakthrough. So now he has to translate those uh, words into real programs. But in terms of uh, redirecting the course of the pandemic in South Africa, I think he hit a home run today. So that sounds like uh, significant changes in government policy. So there's policy. Uh, there's also stigma. Uh, in November, the South African government ruled not to discriminate against HIV-positive soldiers in the military. Has the climate, the, the culture for HIV-positive people improved? Well, I think there, it's starting to. I mean, you have to recall that we had 10 years of uh, President and Becky's dramatically tragic failed leadership on HIV-AIDS. I would argue it might even be criminal, uh, where he basically stigmatized the disease. He basically put out false information. He questioned whether the HIV virus led to AIDS. I mean, for 10 years, the country was led by someone who was completely off track. And now we have a new president who we weren't sure how he was going to move. And I think he's really brought in a new era for AIDS in that country. So South Africa has a new president this year. The United States also has a new president in President Obama. Your organization, Global AIDS Alliance, and others have criticized the Obama administration for a lack of action in this area. The report yesterday gave Obama a D plus. Why the low grade? Well, President Obama, this is his first World AIDS Day commemoration as well. During the campaign, he made a lot of promises about ramping up uh, the response to AIDS in the United States. The nation's capital has the worst uh, epidemic, uh, worse in some African countries. That's a national embarrassment. We see rising uh, in, uh, trends in HIV in uh, certain populations, uh, women of color, for example, in the United States. So. That's crazy. we got to stop that, and we need his leadership, and he's not delivered. And uh, we're hoping that he'll hear the message today and get his administration back on track. They've, they've lost their bearings. It's still a new administration. We're hopeful that they can still redirect their efforts in a more positive way. But right now, uh, they're off track, and it's, uh, they're taking the movement and the effort off the cliff. We've been speaking with Dr. Paul Seitz, Executive Director of Global AIDS Alliance, about efforts to combat HIV-AIDS in Africa and around the world. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for covering the story. To find out more about World AIDS Day, events taking place around the world, and to read personal stories about people living with HIV, go to worldaidsday.org. And now we turn to HIV-AIDS in the U.S., And as Dr. Paul Zeitz, our previous guest, mentioned, Washington, D.C. has the highest rate of HIV-AIDS in the country. And there's a battle brewing in Washington over the city's needle exchange programs. Many HIV-AIDS workers advocate the programs as a way to stem the spread of the disease. But proposed changes to the city's needle exchange program could make it more difficult for those who need the services, many of whom are at risk for contracting HIV-AIDS through dirty needles. 
FSRN's Karen Miller has more. Current D.C. law says a SEP, or syringe exchange program, cannot operate within a 1,000 feet of a school. The new restriction prohibits these programs from additional places where children might be. D.C. Congressperson Eleanor Holmes Norton is trying to fight the ban. If you say you can't have them near a daycare center, you can't have them near a, a park, or you can't have them near you know, virtually any public place, then it turns out that there's no place in this uh, mid-sized city to do needle exchange at all. Sites within a thousand feet of swimming pools, colleges and universities, video arcades, youth centers, and events sponsored by youth or educational institutions would also be off limits. In a city where 3% of residents have HIV-AIDS, this has many healthcare workers concerned. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention consider infection rates over 1% to be an epidemic. Don Blanshaw is the executive director of the Whitman Walker Clinic, a community health center in Washington, D.C. He says the reduction of needle exchange programs would make things far worse. If there was a ban or restriction in place today, Tomorrow, you know, more and more people would be affected because they can't swap out dirty needles. And the second issue, which is really important, is they're not in regular communication or touch with the healthcare system. So the individual's not getting regular care or counseling. And that's a big deal. That's how we fight, you know, and stop new infections every day is by keeping people in care. So it's a pretty big deal. To, this restriction really will hurt people. D.C. public health advocates fought for years to get funding for needle exchange programs. They, along with former drug addicts, see firsthand the direct correlation between needles and HIV. 62-year-old Hazel Smith was diagnosed with HIV in 2001. She says she acquired the disease from a mix of unprotected sex and drug addiction. She said a needle exchange program would have helped. Being a recovering addict and alcoholic, that needle exchange program would have helped me. Maybe for not sharing needles. Some say having needle exchange programs helps another group, children. 27-year-old Elena Preston says her mother was addicted to heroin when she was born. While she didn't get HIV, Preston was born with hepatitis B. The, you know, obviously the children are the future generation um, and they're going to be contributing a lot to the D.C. community. And we need to make sure that they're safe every step of the way and that starts from birth. AIDS activists are currently fighting the restrictions on the needle exchange programs. Several members of Congress put the restrictions on the programs as part of an annual D.C. appropriations bill. Karen Miller, FSRN, Washington. Unemployed people will lose subsidies to pay for health insurance today. The government's stimulus plan gave relief to people who lost their jobs so they could continue to buy health insurance. But for many, those subsidies expired yesterday. FSRN's Leanne Caldwell reports. The federal stimulus plan provided nine months of subsidies for laid-off people to purchase health insurance through COBRA. But for people who received benefits in March, the first month it was made available, the subsidies ended yesterday. As Executive Director of Families USA, Ron Pollock says, this means that many families will become uninsured. For millions of laid-off workers and their families, The federal COBRA subsidies have been a health coverage lifeline. The average cost for a family to buy COBRA, $1,100 per month. It consumes nearly all of the average unemployment check. And in nine states, the cost of COBRA exceeds the average unemployment check. 
For a family receiving unemployment benefits, that price tag without any assistance is a hard pill to swallow. The government subsidy pays more than half, bringing down the cost to an average $390 per month per family. The Treasury Department does not have official numbers of people who use the subsidy, but the Congressional Budget Office estimated that 7 million workers and children would do so. While Democrats in Washington are busy trying to pass a permanent fix to health care, this temporary relief for the unemployed is urgent, says Pollock. He says Congress needs to step in and extend the subsidies. The quicker uh, this legislation passes, the better, um, because uh, you know people who can't pay for the COBRA premium uh, without the subsidy will be uninsured and That's like playing Russian roulette with their health. Democrats are talking about passing a new jobs package. They say expanding the COBRA subsidy is priority. But House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said the extension might not come until after the new year. If we adopt it uh, in the next two or three weeks or we adopt it uh, in uh, January, uh, we need to make sure it'll work. As the Senate has health care on its plate, likely until the end of the year, the chance that relief for the unemployed will come before the new year is minimal. Proposals to extend COBRA subsidies for six months have not yet been priced, but is likely to cost billions of dollars. That concerns Republicans. Senator John Cornyn of Texas. The question is, you know, how is it going to be paid for? Is it going to be paid for by borrowing more money? Or uh, is it actually, are we going to use unexpended stimulus funds? Or are we going to use uh, TARP? You know, it has to be paid for. I think that's the number one concern people have is all of the uh, mountains of debt with no uh, end in sight. As subsidies run out and high unemployment continues, the numbers of uninsured are also likely to rise. Leanne Caldwell, FSRN, Washington, D.C. This week marks the 10-year anniversary of the protests in Seattle that took place during the World Trade Organization's meeting. The week brought together a coalition of environmentalists, labor activists, and human rights groups and drew attention to the WTO's expanding influence throughout the world. It also led to new innovations in independent media and a growth in citizen journalism. In the second of a two-part series... FSRN's Jill Friedberg has more on the legacy of independent media centers 10 years later. The Seattle Independent Media Center opened its doors on November 30, 1999, providing infrastructure for independent journalists who had come to cover the WTO protests. The center was linked to a website called IndieMedia.org, an open publishing newswire. Anyone could post text, audio, or video to the site without first going through an editor. At that time, open publishing was a new concept. After the WTO protests, there was an explosion of independent media centers, often referred to as IMCs, around the world, and indie media quickly became a global network of independent journalists. Jenny Lee was a founding member of the Michigan Independent Media Center in 2002. There was... 
such a strong appeal in this concept of open publishing that indie media was putting forward. And I think 10 years later from that point and all of the huge shifts that have taken place in the way that people interact with information online, indie media played a significant role in creating that shift. And in some ways, we should see it as a victory for open publishing, you know, the way that every mainstream news article allows for commenting or that there are all these different tools for putting your voice out on the Internet, whether blogs or Twitter. The Detroit IMC had similar beginnings to Seattle's. Both started with massive protests. We were organizing against the G8 Energy Summit that was happening in Detroit. For several years after that, the Michigan Indie Media Center grew and thrived in a lot of ways, um, brought people together from across the state, had a pretty active open publishing newswire. But as was the case with many independent media centers, the Michigan IMC eventually closed its doors. Members wanted to focus on more community-based media efforts, and Lee began working with the Live Arts Media Project at Detroit Summer, a multiracial collective organizing youth-led media arts projects. We realized that we wanted to focus on community media that would be deeply connected to community organizing in our cities. When we start making media as a community and start asking questions and investigating problems as a community, that has a transformative effect on a community level. The exciting thing is that 10 years later, um, even though so many IMCs have shut down, so many of the same people that were involved with IMCs over the years are now involved with this huge spectrum of community media projects that can trace their work back to indie media and sort of took the best of what indie media had to offer. Lee cites the Media Mobilizing Project in Philadelphia and Mobile Voices, or VOSMOB, in Los Angeles as examples of community-based media justice projects that grew from the seeds planted by indie media. The video collective Pepper Spray Productions came out of the now defunct Seattle Independent Media Center and to this day covers underreported stories in Washington State and hosts community screenings. Randy Rowland is a co-founder of Pepper Spray Productions. There was no structure in the IMC that, that really encouraged more development. And in a sense, Pepper Spray almost had to come up in spite of, rather than because of, I mean, we had to more or less insist on carrying the dream forward. But frankly, if the IMC hadn't been there, you know, I wouldn't have had anything to plug into. And then from that, of course, people made ties with individuals within that, and, and those ties sometimes lasted longer than just the IMC. But I think it made a huge difference. Vladimir Flores lives in Oaxaca, Mexico, and has been collaborating with indie media in Mexico since its founding in 2000. He argues that indie media's greatest contribution there has been introducing new technological tools to already vibrant popular media traditions. Indie media as a project began in Mexico in the context of the Zapatistas movement in the struggle for recognition of the legal rights of the indigenous peoples in Mexico. We began to use the web technologies, especially to learn and new ways to communicate. I recognize at least three different levels of the fight against corporative media. The first level is the takeover of the technologies that the, the Indie Media Project is a good example. This is the first level that we are on right now. 
The second level, I think, is the the teaching of this kind of uh, new technologies to our relatives, to our communities. And the third level maybe is the construction of an alternative or autonomous economy because the last step of the fight against uh, corporative media is in the heart of the capitalism that is the economy. Though many indie media centers across the United States, including here in Seattle, have closed, the spirit of grassroots journalism and unfiltered communication continues on outside our borders and through such media convergences as the Allied Media Conference. The next conference will take place in the summer of 2010 in Detroit, Michigan. For Free Speech Radio News, this is Jill Friedberg in Seattle. This story is part of a five-part series on the legacy of the WTO protests in Seattle. To hear the rest of the series, including what's happened to the Teamster and Turtles Coalition, go to our website at fsrn.org. And that wraps up today's program. The newscast was produced by Catherine Kopp. Today's headlines editor was Nell Abram. Washington, D.C. editor was Leanne Caldwell. Our technical production team at KPFA in Berkeley includes Rose Katapchi and Scott Pham. You can visit us online at fsrn.org. You can send questions, comments, or news tips to comments at fsrn.org. Thanks for listening. In New York, I'm Doran Marina. This month, Golden Thread Productions presents Reorient 2009, The First Ten Years, a festival of short plays exploring the Middle East. This one-of-a-kind festival turns the Bay Area into a mecca for innovative, spirited, and thought-provoking theater from around the world, providing a rare opportunity for artists and audiences alike to engage deeply and directly with the Middle East in a creative and supportive setting that displaces misinformation and encourages understanding. This year, Golden Thread celebrates the festival's 10th anniversary by featuring a world premiere by MacArthur Genius Award winner Naomi Wallace, as well as a retrospective of plays from the festival's past 10 years. The festival runs through to December 13th at the Thick House in San Francisco. Please visit Golden Thread's website for all the latest programming and ticketing information.